Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, A Worker's Guide to Everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenigisoltas. Like I just thought, you know, it's the 175th anniversary of, of the publication of the Manifesto of the Communist Party. To give it its like proper title, uh, shortened now to the Communist kind of Manifesto, and um, like it, it draw me back to actually kind of you know kind of start reading it again and actually reading some of the prefaces as well and and you know some of the commentary which Marx and Engels put on the book itself. But I just thought it'd be worthwhile, you know, just maybe just having a kind of conversation about it because like for many people, certainly for me anyway, you know, it's your it's your entry drug into kind of communism. You know, it's it's short. It's readable, and it's the one that I think most people kind of pick up, kind of forced. Um, what's your own kind of thoughts on the? Did you have a chance to take and flick through it again, or did you? I did, yeah. When you, when you said to me, I mean, I, I remember I saw your post today on social media about um, the first time you bought it as a teenager and reading through it, and it, it drew me back to my because I bought it when I was about sixteen, I think, and I bought it at Woolworths <laughs> in, in on Brixton High Road. Uh, I don't know what the fuck it was doing there, but there was a copy of it in, in bricks and hiring walls, and I bought it. And I remember, I, mean, I still have the copy, like I don't know. It wasn't as well as annotated as yours, Connor. I have to say, I just kind of read it. You know what I mean, um, but um, yeah, and I did. I did get a chance to read it and reread it. it, it was, it's always interesting going back to texts, which you haven't looked at in fucking decades, and yet it was so important at the time that they set you on a particular path. And I suppose reading that that book did it for me. I read a bit of sort of crappy biography of Marx at the same time, and I did take an interest in it. Um, as I looked up today, I was looking for a quote today because I know you asked me to do it. I says there's a great quote from Harold Lasky about the Communist Manifesto, and he says a um, few documents in the history of mankind have stood up so remarkably to the test of veri- verification by the future than the Communist Manifesto, and that holds really true for me still. Because when I reread it, there's so many bits and you just go yep and yep and yep again. You know, it um, and it kind of proves to us, I suppose, doesn't it, that it is a it's kind of a bit of a masterpiece, really, I think. And I think that bandy that word around quite a lot, but it's kind of an analytical masterpiece. It's a rhetorical masterpiece as well. It's a good read, as you said. Um, and compared to anything, present company, excludes, of course, compared to anything <laughs> written, written on the left today, I mean, there's no comparison, you know? And it's, you know, I suppose, what is it? It's essentially a call to arms, you know? That's, that's kind of what I like about it, you know? And it was so early on as well in the development of socialist ideas and communist ideas. I mean, you think 1848 was a long fucking time ago, but it was early even, wasn't it, in the development of, of socialist movements and communist movements like that. And yet it was so fucking prescient in so many ways. And it was written by two lads who were fucking 27. That's yeah. thing I yeah. can't get out of my head. <laughs> they were, I don't know what I was were... doing 27, but it wasn't that. <laughs> no, no, they were... They were so young. I mean, like even even today, um, it still bites. It still hits home, which is quite incredible for for anything that was written in like eighteen forty eight. You know, like you know, even when you think about novels of Dickens and you know, like other authors, there's very few that have that kind of that kind of style, that way of actually kind of getting across kind of arguments. I kind of shared just some photographs I had taken of the copy I'd gotten and reading kind of reading kind of my comments as a teenager. That it had different right on it. Um, I did not understand what I was reading, <laughs> but but I had the kind of good sense to 
at least know that and kind of delve kind of more into it. I've funny enough, I've had that experience myself with a lot of left wing texts over the years when I've reread them like a decade later and I've gone, Well, that's really I really understand that. Either I was thick at the time or I've learned a lot. I start now understand what I'm reading. So yeah, it's funny I've had I've had that experience with quite a few good left wing texts. You know, you do have to go back to these texts. You do have to reread them from time to time because they reveal themselves to you in different ways, I think, as you move through your own life and your own history and your own experience. You do, because like, you know, you know, read my kind of comments as a as a kind of teenager. What I see in it is that um like I was hanging around with a group of what I'd see now as kind of right wing kind of Labour Party heads. You know, like right wing kind of Irish Labour Party heads. Mm-hmm. And I can see their influence in my comments. So what I find kind of interesting is that we're trying to make sense of a document, but we kind of separate it from the time in which we read it, which is actually one of the key kind of comments or lessons of the Comics kind of Manifesto. We are products of our own time, you know? I mean, you know, his whole thing or Marx's kind of things or his whole kind of argument was, that's why we need a much kind of wider kind of template because we have to understand what are these kind of mechanisms that we live in today in order to make sense of it, you know? I mean, that's exactly, I think, one of the things that the Manifesto does in a small way that Das Kapital does, obviously in a very, very different way, is, is provide that kind of analytical framework that becomes really useful. Once you once you have that, once you get it, and historical materialism is part of that, I suppose, once you have that framework, once you have that kind of view of the world uh, and you see the world that way, the way they saw it, you know, you can't unsee it. That's the thing that struck me when I was in my thought 20s. Like once you saw the world and how it worked and once you understood the class system, once you understood capitalism for what it was, you can ignore it, um, you can be cynical, but you can't unsee it, you know? Um, and that's why social democrats should always read the Communist Manifesto and as right-wing labour heads. You know? Because what did you... I didn't read your notes, but I need to want to know what you annotated, Connor. Did you write, this is utopian, this will never work, we have to be more pragmatic? <laughs> no, it was it was interesting like, that, like, you're still kind of, you know, struggling with the idea of its individual responsibility. And I, I can see myself kind of battling with that in the notes because it, that's what I'm hearing. One of the persons who was in a kind of gang who I thought were kind of left wing, I don't know, ended up as a special advisor to kind of one of the leaders of like FINA of Labour. Yeah, it was it was Rory Quinn. So so he ended up as a special advisor to kind of Rory Quinn. Just ended up, you know, in a whole kind of path. His politics didn't change from when he was seventeen. Mine mine fucking well did, <laughs> you know. Um, but that's what I found interesting. Like that. Like what I was battling with, uh, I, I just reading kind of my comments again, was it was this thing around individual responsibility, which is the great kind of social democratic, uh, you know, kind of uh, trope that's thrown out. Don't look at how the system works. It's all about how, how you fit into it. What's your role in this? It gets into charity and why governments love kind of charities because it's about individual responsibility. It's a line which the Tories kind of use now. And there's me as a 16, kind of, you know, like 17 year old, knowing that it's probably bullshit, but still kind of battling kind of with those ideas. And you're trying, when, like this is in the 1980s, that there's no internet, you can't Google this stuff. So you're trying to work out kind of, you know, like all this thing by reading the Comes to Manifesto. And going to kind of Billy Bragg gigs, which is what I was trying to do in terms of of, of yeah, kind, of, yeah. kind of you know kind of all that stuff. But it's that idea that it's something that like even reading it kind of today, I was learning kind of stuff again. So you know, the artist mm-hmm. it was bringing kind of ideas kind of back into it again. Just going back to the there was a brilliant kind of preface 
which they which he wrote in eighteen seventy two, where they say themselves that you know, if we were writing it now, we'd probably kind of change some things, some of the language. We probably wouldn't attack on the socialists as much. But the underlying kind of premise holds up. So this is them, you know, uh, writing twenty four years afterwards and saying, no, this this is a good piece of work. I mean, this mm-hmm. it, it just kind of stands up. And what they argue about is that thing around that it's about kind of trying to grapple with what's the dominant mode of the production and what are the social relations which come out of that and then how do we fit into that whole kind of system. And that still holds up. And that for me is the key kind of, now it's what I see as the key kind of learning but from that is that it's about looking at how the system itself works as a capitalist system. And then what are the social relations which then come out of that? Yeah, it's it's important, I think, the book, because of the way it does that as well, though. It's not just about outlining that kind of anatomy of capital, which it does amazingly in such a short book. Obviously, Das Kapital does it in a different way and you can get deeper into it. But in such a short book, it outlines that anatomy of capital in a way that no one else had before. And, but it does it through rhetoric. It does it through this really interesting style of writing that's very gothic, very mid-19th century, you know, um, and as I said, a call to arms, very polemical. And you get the really interesting combination of the rhetoric and, and the polemic, I think, there, which works really well. There was a, and it's alive with that kind of figures of speech and metaphors and which Das Kapital takes to a whole kind of different level. And it does it, I think it does it, because in order to explain to people, because you think they're 1848, so they're about, what, 60, 70 years into the Industrial Revolution. I mean, it's really quite new in terms of the world, in terms of Northern Europe, North America. And you have to think back to the impact of the Industrial Revolution, that explosion of productive forces that capitalism brought about, you know, through the factory system and through centralization of production and all those various characteristics of capitalism, private ownership of all that course, but but that, that explosion of productivity, you know, and it, and it, they sum that up brilliantly. And there's one quote, I love it, and it's right on the first, I think it's in the first page or two, and it's other, you don't mind me reading it, and it's that, and it's a famous one, I know everyone will know it, and it's constant revolutionizing of production, uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions, everlasting uncertainty and agitation distinguish the bourgeois epoch from all other ones. And encapsulates in one sentence that 70-year period when the world just fucking turns upside down. You know, you've got, that's why, I mean, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. That's where you had that gothic horror coming from because everything's got, everything's changing around people. And yet, mm. here's these two young geezers, the middle of it all. It's the bit I like the best. Just trying to read it and trying to understand it. And doing it so well and writing it in a fucking little book <laughs> that they published in Germany in London. Um, and it's never been bettered, you know? And the way I, you know, it's, I just think it's almost genius how they did that at that time because so many people were struggling to understand what was going on in the world at the time, you know? What this new thought, and as you said, they, they, and it's all about those forces of production and the social relations that then they create and they emerge out of that. And that sets, us, that sets up history, doesn't it, for the next 200 years, 175 years, you know? Fantastic. It does. And, you know, you asked me because I reread it today and I really enjoyed to reread it, as you can tell. Yeah, but like, you know, like, you know, even on that point, I mean, uh, when they wrote it, 75% of Germany was still rural, you know. I mean, you know, it, mm. it was Germany was still a predominantly uh, rural economy. Uh, France was not much kind of uh, further on either. So, I mean, like, it, it must have been staggering just to say that, that what's happening in in Manchester and in Birmingham, that's the future. Here's the future. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to play out well for us. You know, this is what's going to happen here. You know, and actually, like, like what I've been doing kind of separate, you know, yeah, to this. Hobsbawm said that, Hobsbawm said okay. that, he said that, a great quote from him, he said that uh, Manchester and Birmingham didn't remain a back, that backward enclave in all of this, you know, because some people thought it might have just been an isolated 
weird thing that's happened in England. But as you said, this was the future. This was going to be, this was the model for everything that was to come after that, you know. It was, and it has, you know. I mean, you know, everything to the factory system, to the to that whole kind of way of just kind of monetizing human labor to a quite literally industrial global scale. And that's the only thing about it as well. I mean, they argue in it, you know, saying that we now have a genuine global economy. There was there was global trade come beforehand, but this is a globalized mm. economy and this is what it looks like. And we're able to kind of tie in what's happening in terms of the colonies or of the way that Britain was operating and the way that it was reconfiguring vast swathes of the world in its own image to yeah, suit its own image. And we're able just to kind of capture kind of all of that. Like, I mean, I'm trying to explain that to people in our political education schools. When I mean, you're trying to explain that, well, from the period from the early 1700s through to the 20th century, even the 21st century, about that expansion of capital, that system across the globe. And, you know, it, it over time and space, because it occurs at those two different dimensions. You know, over time, in terms of geographically, it's moving around the world through colonization. Um, and over time, it's taken 250 years. I always use analogies. If you imagine England being at the center when you drop a pebble in a pond, and that's Manchester, and that's Birmingham, that's, you know, that's um, Arkwright's fucking first manufacturing, Crawford in Derbyshire. And as the pebble hits the water, the ripples of the pond moving out over time and space, that's capitalism, you know, transforming the planet and transforming the globe. And, but those ripples aren't always smooth. They're met with resistance, you know what I mean? Uh, and it contains fucking colonization, and genocide and destruction of pre-capitalist cultures. But um, again, reading that book today reminded me of how fucking good that analysis was. They were able to write that in 1848, you know, when all this was happening. As you said, just in a small part of the world, actually, because the rest of the world's not capitalist at that point. No, 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 I mean, not as we would kind of understand it kind of today. I mean, like, but we're able to kind of see that future and and also on time. Like, I mean, like what I found kind of interesting in reading it now is that they understood by capitalist time, which is a different conceptual kind of framework to how, kind of, how you know, how kind of time is it's kind of normally seen. They saw history, not as a linear, but as a canvas to observe these things in motion. Marx's, Marx's own a conception of history is it's closer to that movie, everything, everywhere, all at once, mm. than it is to the linear view that is normally seen from your Desmond Greaves and from your other, from the Workers' Party in the 1990s, where you had this kind of stages view of how capitalism works. Marx doesn't have that. He sees what's happening 20 years ago, 40 years ago, and 80 years in the future. At the same time, he sees those links. He sees, you know, how, how they're all kind of connected and how they all kind of feed off each other. You know, even even down to, um, they put the intro to the contribution to the critique of, kind of political economy that he wrote about kind of 20 years afterwards. He, you know, he's more kind of reflective. He says more or less this in the Comics kind of Manifesto, but he makes it clear where he says that in order to observe these forces of the production, you need that view of how can civil society works and how things do not end. Nothing ever ends. The past is here today and the past never really kind of goes away. And the building blocks of the future are also here as well. And, and this is something that gets into kind of alternatives that from a Marxist a conception, the alternatives are already here. You know, this is something that we both kind of talked about in terms of kind of, you know, counter-capitalist kind of measures. But the alternatives are here. They're not kind of structured into the mode of a production yet, but the alternatives are here. The, the building blocks 
for the counter capitalist world are already here. Just as well, they said it, they said it, yeah, yeah, they said it, didn't they? In that famous quote, I mean, it's, it's probably one of the most famous yeah. metaphors, if you like, if not quote from the Communist Manifesto, is it? You know that when Marx called Angles called the proletariat the grave diggers of the bourgeoisie, in a sense that this new system has produced these competing classes that will be that will always be in conflict and struggle until one kills the other, one defeats the other, and that and it will be the proletariat. They can they can do no other, and so in the in the seams of this new system, the grave diggers of the system are produced, and that it's those it's those people, it's us, is that will replace this system with something else, you know. And as you say, it's not linear. It's not like this is going to end and that's going to start, because things begin long before the ideas of socialism and communist societies begin, almost at the same time as capitalism begins. In that sense, and people are talking. It is. About, this it is. is. This isn't going to work for me. Like I'm not fucking happy with this kind of thing, you know. And and so that those ideas begin almost immediately from the O and I kind of cooperative ideas of the 1820s and 30s, right the way through to, you know, the, the Russian Revolution in 1917 and, and beyond and since. And, of course, the ideas that we've been toying with and many people are toying with in 2023, you know, build the future now, alternative systems, you know, being built within the seams of the end of this one. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's... it's Why the grave it's, diggers? It's the grave diggers from it. You know, it's an idea <laughs> that, um, like, for the capitalist system... To work, it needs non-capitalist modes in order to survive. Um, it can't be fully kind of capitalist. If it is, it would not be able to function because it's an extractive system. So, if you have a totally kind of capitalist kind of, uh, which is kind of what we're seeing in the last kind of twenty years, which is why it's getting more and more kind of fucked up. That, like you know, as it turns into a purely kind of capitalist kind of society, those areas of like of extraction become fewer and like fewer. So it starts to kind of feed back in, the on itself uh, time and again. But it's almost like, um, like one of the arguments that's usually kind of put forward is that there is no kind of alternative to the system. This is it now. This is how kind of things work. But really what kind of Marxism points out and at angles, that not only are we, it's kind of grave diggers, these alternatives are here now. They have to even Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in the concept of, I mean, I know Gray spoke about it and there was a really interesting book a few years ago by um, Lee Phillips and someone else, you know, the People's Republic of Walmart. Mm. And they speak to the, the, the nonsense of capitalism based on values of individualism and competition. You mentioned individualism right at the start. And that's kind of the story we tell of capitalism, but it isn't what capitalism is. I mean, capitalism is fundamentally cooperative internally, like within the firm, within the corporation. There's huge cooperation going on there. There's huge planning, central planning, by the way, if we can use those two words together, going on within these massive monopolies. And so that's the grave diggers almost. It's not just the people within it, it's the system itself. We're showing that central coordination and state planning and, and centralized planning actually works in the modern era. So you're right, the, the next stage of, of human development is already with us. We just have to recognize where it is and what it looks like and what, what we can take from this system to develop into the next, how you can, tra- how you can transform it. Um, and so you're right, it's not about, so it's, it's about separating out the myth of the free market and of the capitalist system versus actually how it does operate, you know? Mm. And, you know, and it operates very, very cooperatively in parts, you know? But as back opposed then, to competitively. Yeah, I mean, like going back like to Ireland and to, you know, I was trying to kind of tie these things into wrong kind of reality and it's wrong kind of things. I went back also to 1848 and I went to kind of newspapers trying to get a sense of was any kind of mention of it and you know what's happening in kind of 1848 like is of course is that there's all these social revolutions uh, that are happening outbreaking all across kind of Europe. Um, the kind of manifesto is published about two months prior 
cities kind of breaking out, including here as well in, in Ireland. What's interesting about the end of the one in Ireland is that the story that's told of 1848 in Ireland is of the young Irelanders and their little kind mm. of, uh, you know, kind of novel. <laughs> their careful Imus McCormick's uh, cabbage patching. Yeah, that's right. I was reading the, the Battle of Ballingarry. Yeah, if, if, you're, yeah. if you're a good Irish nationalist, it's the Battle of Ballingarry. But if you're the a fucking hog, it's, it's the Battle of Widow McCormick's Cabbage Patch. But what I find interesting from a historical kind of point of view is that prior to that, there was a roundup. There was a there was the usual kind of suspension of kind of Hape's corpus in June 1848. And the people who were lifted were not just kind of young Irelanders or be, because they went on the run. But it was Chartists, and it was the, it was Chartists in Dublin, mm. including one guy, uh, Patrick O'Higgins, who had I, I think something like two or three hundred guns in his house on uh, in like Ann Street North, which he said they were for personal use, is what he said, <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, you know he was into to hunting. He was held for eighteen months, and he was released in kind of eighteen forty nine. Um, he was a very broken man uh, then afterwards, uh, but like. He would be, but the condition. I mean, the conditions of Ireland then. I mean, if you, I mean, eighteen forty-eight. We think when you think of the Euro Revolution. I mean, that's in the middle of the fucking famine. So, I mean, the idea that you know that the Irelanders that there was Ireland was near revolution. I mean, a million and well, they were in the midst of a million dying, a million leaving on the shores on fucking coffin ships. I mean, Ireland was in fucking was in pieces. Wasn't it during that period? And it that was. continued to be for another another twenty, thirty years. You know, so um, it's no wonder that the eighteen forty-eight Euro Revolution ended up in a cabbage patch in County Tipperary, you know. But what I find of interest about is that like Patrick O'Higgins and the Yorkshire Chartists were very much kind of socialist and were linked to kind of communists as well. Uh, their story doesn't get told. What gets told is the middle That's interesting because you, you, because yeah, well, it's interesting because that piece you produced or you published or put online a brilliant piece the other day yesterday about a, a letter. What was it? Tell me about that. A letter from the British trade union movement. It was the British um, Trade Union movement. And the Young Irelanders are there saying, you need to fucking dump O'Connell. Like, he's not, he's not our friend. Yeah, and um, it was written in a pub in the Irish section of like, Manchester, which uh, the part of kind of Manchester that Engels, uh, writing at roughly the like, same time, wrote uh, the condition of the working class mm. in England. So there's a very good chance that these were not just concerned English trade unionists, but they were Irish kind of trade unionists, like John Doherty, the now sadly kind of forgotten Irish kind of trade unionist. Uh, he was a he was he was now now kind of communist, very kind of strong in the British kind of trade union movement in the eighteen um, thirties and the eighteen forties. Uh, very much a kind of a, a radical kind of chartist, and also someone who you know who constantly argued, constantly argued that you cannot just have a political change in Ireland. There needs to be kind of social and structural change as well. Uh, in fact. Going back to the it's, line, yeah. Go on. Sorry, go on. Yeah, no. Just, uh, just going back to the, going back to the preface on the, yeah, from Marx and Engels, uh, where they say that uh, that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state and machinery and wield it for its own purposes. So the great kind of social democratic idea and the one uh, that Sinn Fein have now as well, of course, is that once we get into power, things will be different. And what they're saying is that, no, the system is set up in a certain way. And these arguments are happening in 1840s and in 1850s because then it's in living memory when Ireland had its, you know, had its own parliament. It's still in living memory. You know, mm. it's, it's like it's like 40, 50 years after after 1798. Um, 
So there's that classic. It's that classic success, isn't it? Liberal capitalist democracy that emerges. They they manage to delineate this gap between the, the economic sphere and the political sphere. And if you have control over the political sphere, that's all that matters. Whereas if you're a Marxist, you understand that all our power actually lies in the economic sphere and in ownership. Yeah. That that's where power is. So and and the democratic sphere doesn't allow you to take ownership of the economic sphere. And that's how they, they they like to picture anyway. So yeah, it's 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 a and that's what's interesting it's, it's about trick. It is, you know, and it's, you know, and what's interesting about just the eighteen forties in Ireland when we welcome Marx and Engels are are writing these is that those those people in Ireland, those groups in Ireland who are making kind of this argument saying that we can't just have repeal of the union, yet we need to have a universal kind of suffrage, uh, votes for women as well, you know, some were arguing, which even, you know, up to the 1940s was still a radical idea in France, you know. Um, so, um, but it's also the period, I mean, I was reading the other day, it was 1850 that the 3Fs first appeared. I know they've become really important during the land wars of the 1870s, so it's in that radical revolutionary period of the 1848-50 that the three, you know, free, was it uh, free sale, fixity of tenure, and, and fair rents, that, that fair rent in 1850. So that's a far more radical view of land ownership at the very least. And I mean, that there was, that was popular in the kind of Connellyite, in the O'Connellite kind of. It um, is. And it's, and it's leadership of Ireland. It is. And it's, it's O'Connell who is at some, you know, like um, he sent around thugs to break up meetings of these people like kind of Patrick O'Higgins who, who have a meeting saying that, no, we need to change the, the economic mode here as well. Like, and and O'Connell is the great the great kind of pacifist, the uh, the Martin Luther King of his day, as uh, you know, as he's kind of portrayed, you know, in in the Irish history, is sent round armed gangs to smash up uh, radical meetings. Where those kind of radical meetings are calling for an economic uh, distribution, or an economic. And he was a supporter of, and he was a supporter of the Whig administration and probably his laissez-faire economics on Ireland, which exacerbated the famine and caused hundreds of thousands, millions of deaths. Exactly. He was calling for kind of repeal of the con laws back in the 1830s because they wanted ranchers. So it's what he wanted was to free up all that tillage land in Ireland for fucking kind of cattle trade. But bringing it back to Marx and Engels is that even though what he wrote seems to have jumped out of history because it's still kind of relevant today, they were still writing of their time. Um, it, it was interesting going back to why they attack socialists so much in the book, uh, which by the 1870s, they're saying, well, maybe that wouldn't really hold today. It's like mm. 20 years later, because the socialists were seen as a middle-class kind of movement and the communists, that was a working-class movement. So they were very consciously saying that we are communists because we do not want anything to do with the middle classes. They can go fuck themselves. So, so, and I can see this in the papers, in the arguments that are being made in Britain and in Ireland at that time. Those who are radical with, with a class consciousness are saying, no, we are communists. And those who are socialists are your middle classes who want, you know, just things to be better somehow by, by these kind of magic ways. Sorry, I was fancying on there, it was. No, no, but you're right. It's that idea of tinkering around the edges of the system versus revolutionists. I mean, in essence, the, the birth of the system, isn't it? What do we do with this system that's emerging? Do we do we transform it? Do we adapt it? I mean, that's where the, that Owenite kind of socialism comes from as well, doesn't it? That kind of utopian socialism of the 
thirties and which Max and Engels hated. They despised yeah, it. Yeah, they despised they it. Yeah, it was the idea that we can we can look after the workers and the workers will be nice and we'll give them wee houses and we'll take care of them and you know we'll, they can come to work in our little Quaker factory and there's always that bollocks that went along with the time as opposed to turning the whole thing on its head. Um, but that those traditions are still very much with us. Those those traditions haven't haven't disappeared, have they, Lionel? Um, they're, they're very very much part of the left. You know, is it is it is it reform revolution? You know. Yeah, you know, it's an it's an ongoing battle, Ilik, even today, to kind of, you know, like, how much kind of reform do you have to kind of suffer in order to kind of, um, like, move on? Because it's always about that kind of compromise, you know? It's always about how we have to somehow kind of compromise kind of views and, and, and what we want in order to achieve it kind of today, but then what we're really kind of achieving anyway, you know? Um, like, I mean, even our argument over... It not even is so much reform, work and revolution, but do you want systemic change or do you just want to kind of fuck around? You know, and and Marx and Engels are saying, no, the system has to go, you know, and uh, they argue saying that it's inevitable because it will lead to its own kind of collapse. But that argument is still one that is, that is relevant today. It goes back to the French Revolution. You know, uh, you know, do you... Do you back in a Rose Pierre? You know, it's you know that's still kind of going on. You know, you know the other the other interesting thing about the time it was produced as well about eighteen forty eight and the year of revolutions and it isn't often spoke about and that Marx referred to it later on um, was eighteen forty seven was there was the, the panic of eighteen forty seven there was a, there was a financial panic that year before in eighteen in eighteen forty seven that came from the city of London unsurprisingly all oh, right okay and it was a, as a, it was a financial panic. And it was, but it was classic, and they wrote about it later on. At that time, the, I'm not checking it again to see if he wrote about it specifically, but I don't think it did at the time. And it was a, there was a massive speculative bubble and boom in railway companies in England, in particular. Yes, it comes in, back to in me now. the 30s yes. and the 40s, yeah, yeah. and then it all just fucking went tits up in 1847. Loads of money had been lent out. Banks had lent money to developers, South familiar to invest in railways, and, that, that, and the profits weren't coming back simply because there's been overinvestment and speculation, and it all went to, and that spread across Europe, and that hit many. Houses, it hit royal houses because they'd invested heavily in, in rails as well. So it hit everybody really. So you know the, the financial contradictions and the speculative contradictions and the bubbles of capitalism were part of that. Were part of the the, the year of revolutions in eighteen forty eight. And so you had that, you know, when it went tits up, uh, and it, and then you had crop failures and you had a famine as well. Which did, so you had these environmental factors imposed, which is again quite interesting to refer to today. Where it, Tesco and Aldi today are telling us why there's no lettuce and tomatoes and cucumbers in there in a, because of because of extreme weather events in Spain and North Morocco. But so you had this combination of environmental factors and, and financial factors leading to, you know, revolution, uprisings, you know. But your difference then, of course, is it was, it's interesting because, you, as you said, you've got a very small industrial working class working 15 hours a day, six days a week. You've got artisans who are getting fucked over because they're getting replaced by industrialized methods. But then you've got this new bourgeoisie who are looking at these old kings and queens and absolute ones going, we can have some of that. <laughs> so they want state power. They want to take control of things. And that's why I think 1848 is really interesting because you see all of those competing class interests and forces. And that, that's really, for me, the shift from the end of feudalism to the, as Marx showed us in the manifesto, that historical materialist understanding of there are now going to be two classes after this one, not three, not four, not five competing groups, only two, and there's going to be capital or workers, you know, there's going to be capital and labour. And that's kind of the product, I think, of, of 1848. That's what gives us, you know. Um, but it's important. I must look into that in a bit more depth, actually, the panic of 1847, because don't don't really talk a lot about that when we do our political economy stuff, but I think it might be, you know, another bit of history we need to get our teeth into. 
I picked up just a version of or the edition of, of the Comic-Con Manifesto that I picked up for like today was the is the Penguin kind of classic one from 2002. And the intro to that is... Is that is the my, black and white one? The one with the black and white cover? Um, no. Yeah, it's it's that one. Oh, yeah. I love that one. Yeah. Oh, oh, that one there. Oh, I had, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. But like, um, but it, what I like about it is that it's written, it's published in 2002. So the introduction is from 2002. So it's in that sweet spot where yeah. um, it's it's 12 years after the fall of, of the Soviet state. And, well, 10 years after it. Um, but we haven't had the 2008 crash yet. So in it, it's very, it's very much a ends of history kind of view of things and seeing kind of Marxism as a historical event that that happened. And it's interesting and we should look at it, but it's, it's been proved wrong, you know, and this is the new world now, you know, this is the way forward. And it's interesting. The end of history. It's the end of history. So it's interesting that, like, it was written 20 years ago, but 10 years after um, the fall of the Soviet Union. So you have now is that, I don't think there's, there are very many people now who would say that, oh, well, Marxism, that's, that's all in the past and it has nothing to offer kind of today. Like, what I find interesting is that it could not be seen by those on, you know, those in the mainstream, how relevant it was because they were kind of caught up in the whole kind of flashy lights of it. But today, post 2008, now that we see this rampant kind of capitalism, again, very akin to 1947, environmental kind of disasters, financial kind of disasters, and no, no, seemingly no real kind of alternative block there on the line. And yet, there are movements kind of, you know, like underneath that. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that when you do that 2002 thing, the, the great moderation, we've solved the boom and bust of capitalism. Let's forget about fucking Marx, it's irrelevant. And then 2008, the world goes, everything goes tits up. And, and all those neoliberal economists are scrabbling around and they're reading Marx. I remember reading a couple of movies. Actually, I read Marx recently. He, I think he had something to say about contradictions and crises and speculative bubbles. And you're sitting there going, for fuck's sake, you know what I mean? And it was, it was a surprise to me, I think, that people had forgotten Marx. I mean, Marxism will be relevant whilst capitalism exists. It's, I mean, it's as simple as that. You know, it's, it's the best and most searing analysis we have of the system we live under. Obviously, not just the manifesto, but capital as well, and everything else him and, and, and Engels wrote, and others since. But the idea that it, it's irrelevant or something, or it doesn't give us any insight, is, is it's kind of laughable and sad. And if there's anyone listening to this who's on the left who hasn't read the Communist Manifesto recently, or indeed Das Kapital, which is a bit more of a challenge, but nonetheless, you should read it. You should really go back and read them because it, it does fucking give you new insights all the time, you know. I know you've got to, we've got to finish soon, Connor, but I wanted to say one quick thing. There was a, because when you said to come on and speak about the Communist Manifesto, I wanted to highlight the, the one by the, the Communist Party produced in the 80s, which is really fucking interesting. If you're a gay Lagor and you have the, and this is the issue about language, which is really important to me as well. The Communist Party, Price Communist Heron did a publication in the 80s. I don't know who did it, I think it was 86. It's a really good translation of the English. Now, it's a really interesting read. It's well translated. It's a really nice, it's a really good Irish. It's a nice Irish. I like reading it. Um, so for those who haven't get it, I can get it in Connolly Books. You can get it in Party Premises in Belfast as well. But if you, if you have any Irish at all, even if you don't, buy and get a copy of the Irish language version. And um, again, it took a long time to be translated to Irish 86, but interestingly, it's a translation of the English. And the, the opening lines of the English one, of course, is very famous. You know, a spectre is haunting Europe, the spectre of communism. And the Irish version just copies that. It just, you know, 
So it's exactly the same as a, a good Irish translation of the English. But then I was reading today in print for this that the first English translation was actually in 1850, so two years after the first German publication by uh, Helen McFarlane, a chartist person, journalist, I think she was Scottish. And I've got to give you the quote because it appeared in 1850. And it was the only English translation for about, for quite a long time actually. And her, her translation begins, a frightful hobgoblin stalks throughout Europe. And I just, I'm thinking, fuck me, I'm glad that that didn't become the fucking, you know, definitive <laughs> version of the Communist Party uh, manifesto in, in English. So I'm not sure the Communist movement would have taken off if we'd have been that frightful fucking hobgoblin. <laughs> but, but interestingly, it was, but that was the version right up until 1871, until the Paris Commune, which we mentioned. And then after that, you know, because Marx was kind of quite involved with the people involved in that, and he wrote about the Paris Commune. Then, because the Communist Manifesto had been, it almost fallen into obscurity mm. in, those, in that 20 year period before the Paris Commune. And it was only after that, long after that, actually, that Engels, I think, got a geezer called Samuel Moore to do the version. But that 1888. When was it? It was 1880 or 1888. Hey, no, no, 1888. That's, I mean, that's, yeah. that's, after, that's after Marx is dead. Yeah. The, the, the version of the, the, so it, it's interesting too, that, that understanding of history, it was produced, it became really famous. It didn't, it kind of dips and dies and it goes out down and up. And, but luckily, Engels was still alive and got a, a good translator to translate the German. Um, where the fuck she got frightful hobgoblin from? I'm not, because I know the German word for ghost is guest. So it was, it was kind of a similar, similar word. So. Thank God for thank God for Samuel Moore and Friedrich Engels trying giving us that uh, English language <laughs> word anyway. Uh, brilliant stuff. Right, and so we'll finish up then um, on the frightful hobgoblins. That that's a good way to end. <laughs> and uh, thanks for that, Stevie Sound. Brilliant stuff. Cheers. Always, mate. Pleasure. Pleasure. That comrades was trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the victory parade. Upper workers and slang of foil. <laughs>